Hello everyone and welcome to the Council of Elrond, a Lord of the Rings podcast. In today's episode we are going to deconstruct the Battle of Helm's Deep and talk about what makes this battle stand out from any others in film and television history. We'll also be talking some Game of Thrones and behind the scene facts on the famous Battle of the Hornburg. I am your host Dave and with me as per usual is my co-host and fellow Melonhead, Johnny. So get the women and children into the caves and prepare for battle. So before we begin today's episode, I just wanted to make a short announcement. As you may or may not know, myself and Johnny work regular jobs and working on this podcast takes up hours and hours of our free time. And even though we've been having such a great time and loving the feedback and the interaction, it's just not sustainable forever. So we decided to set up a Buy Me A Coffee account. It's very similar to Patreon, but you can make a one-time donation too. It's very easy to use and you don't need to set up an account. If you do feel like sending a little donation as a thank you, or even by supporting us on an ongoing monthly basis, you can do so there, by sending us the equivalent of a cup of coffee, or two, or three, but that's up to you. There will be a link in the podcast description, or you can just search buymeacoffee.com forward slash the melonheads. And remember, that's melon with two L's. Thank you all so much for listening again. Now, on to the episode. Also, just a little disclaimer. We had a little bit of technical difficulty on Johnny's microphone for this episode, but not to worry, the content is as good as ever. So now let's really get on to the episode. So it begins. Helm's Deep can stand alone as a self-contained story and battle, but is also a critical part of something bigger. And being the middle movie in the trilogy, it does an amazing job giving us a satisfying conclusion to a sequel without needing a giant cliffhanger. So some of the things that make the Battle of Helm's Deep great First of all, I want to talk about the use of sound. So if we compare it to other movies such as Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, they use, which is an old, you know, an old school Western, it uses long silences and stares and, you know, there's kind of no sound to a build up to, um, to like a shootout. So spare Foley sound effects like squeaking doors and, you know, rustling of the wind and things like that. Uh, the reason the use of silence is so good in Western is the contrast between silence and a shootout. Mm. And I suppose we'll, we'll probably be talking a good bit about contrast in this episode. So similar to a full-scale battle like Helm's Deep, the contrast between silence and the roaring, stomping Urukai makes the viewer at least feel nervous at first as they anticipate the worst, and then on high alert as the Urukai attack. Yeah, and we actually see that in loads of different parts of Lord of the Rings where we've, spoke, we've spoken about it before on the podcast as well, where very mm. often when there is some kind of explosions, like when we see when the when the Tower of Barad-dûr explodes, uh, very often there can be this kind of little moment of silence just before the big explosion. And actually, I noticed it recently when I was watching The Return of the King in the battle on the Pelennor Fields when they were charging against the, the Mumical. And it was like the very first impact against the Mumical. There was just like this yeah. big loud noise as the whole orchestra playing and then suddenly just everything cuts out and it's complete silence. And then it kind of comes back in, but it's not with a massive thud even. It's co- it comes back in kind of... Um, it's like almost, a fade in, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a fade in, but it's almost like as if somebody is almost underwater or like... You've, mm, imagine yeah. you've, just got, you've just got like impacted or punched in the ear and you're like... You're, you're like trying to... Your hearing isn't working 100% initially in it. Or else very often when you hear 
uh, a bomb exploding and you're watching a movie and it's from the perspective of like one of the soldiers and it's like they kind yeah. of wake up and everything's a little bit fuzzy that's kind of like the way that it comes back in when there's the actual initial thud from the the movie when they're charging but there's as we've spoken about there's loads of different uh, different situations in the in the trilogy where peter jackson like plays with the dynamics and he creates this huge dynamism between like the as you've said before the the silence and the noise and it's a uh, it's so impactful as well yeah didn't we talk about that on our favorites episode with the with the warg scene i think that was in our favorites episodes there was a little bit of a silence just before they had a big clash that's right yeah and, uh, exactly. we, we mentioned the same thing being used in narnia as well but yeah i think it's it's more discreet in peter jackson's i kind of forgot about that mumiko clash yeah yeah it's not yeah exactly i think um when it's you said it's not as obvious yeah i think when you said about the you mentioned that in the narnia movies and then i re, i realized i i didn't remember anything about the narnia movies so i went back and watched them actually actually afterwards and i did um they don't hold up, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I was just—I was pretty, I was pretty underwhelmed. I would say, uh, and oh, not even the first one. That's the only one I watched. And all oh, right, I was okay. thinking I haven't—I haven't seen it in years, but it's—it's it's class in my mind. But uh, all right, well uh, then, we'll don't don't, don't watch it again. Then. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll leave it there. Yeah, and and but I was—I mainly watched it because we had spoken about it in that episode, speaking about the 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 silence before an impact and how that can create. Well, just. If you know anything about dy- dynamics and playing with dynamics, it's just that's uh, that's what you want to do. It's, it's not like you're building and building and building, and you finally reach the crescendo. You want to have like ups and downs mm. all the time. Very good. So comparing this to, for example, the Game of Thrones Battle of Winterfell, where we couldn't really see anything, the Lord of the Rings cinematographer and Oscar winner Andrew Lesney infused each shot with a strong blue backlight with smoke, creating the effect of a bright moon. This helped with the actual visuals, keeping the color palette to just black and blue and very toned down colors as well, and thus helped the viewers' brains focus on what was actually happening. In comparison, the Battle of Winterfell was only lit by fire arrows, fire torches, and every so often some dragon fire as well. But the color palette for them was black, gray, and orange, and those flames didn't illuminate the shots like the moon backlight for Helm's Deep did. It was just, we, mm. we talked about this before as well, yeah. where yeah, we did. It, it mightn't be ultra realistic but it helps the viewer see what's going on and we never we never thought it wasn't realistic you I, just I don't, of... yeah i don't know I, I you you said that in the last podcast as well that maybe you've seen like a lot of online complaints of people saying oh it looks blue and it doesn't look real and, and i watched I, no, I, no, I, it, wasn't I watched... Com- it wasn't complaints it was more like people compare i remember people that were really for game of thrones uh battle like trying to defend it they were trying to defend the battle of winterfell and they were saying, oh, it's more realistic. It pr- probably than more of the producers and the actual uh, filmmakers themselves saying, oh, we wanted to have it not as fake looking as Helm's Deep with the like, well, blue I can backdrop. see I can see their motive for wanting to say this better than Helm's Deep. <laughs> well, but, yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, when, I, when I've gone back and watched it since we uh, I, I've watched it since we did that podcast and I was looking out for that specifically to see if it looked kind of a little bit too blue or anything like that. But I just think it looks brilliant. I just think it looks uh it's so clear. It just looks like a really well shot nighttime scene and I can't see any fault no, with does, the lighting. Yeah. And uh yeah. No, there there isn't any fault. I I think it's just it's unnatural a little bit and there are scenes like when Gimli for instance jumps off the wall and lands on the Urukai. If you just like pause it at that at that scene, you can kind of see smoke and blue light and maybe if you were just to look at that one image it does kind of look like there was a big giant blue light behind the wall shining on the smoke and but 
the viewers don't mm. notice it and that's the main thing and that's what helps everyone enjoy the battle yeah i can't tell you how many how many times i've watched that movie and i've never at any moment been like oh this is a bit too blue for me uh although no. I've, I've never watched the uh, I've, I've, I've never watched the blu-ray uh version i'm not <laughs> saying blu-ray because it got blue but i, I think maybe some people yeah. have said that on the blu-ray version maybe the colors got changed a little bit and they kind of maybe messed it up a little bit i'm not sure if they spoke specifically about is this the blu-ray or the 4k one the blu-ray because apparently oh, right. i saw i think it was somebody reviewing the 4k and they were saying they were speaking specifically about the, the colors being really crisp and being really really good on the 4k and they said mm. that in the blu-ray version the the colors weren't as good and maybe the the kind of I don't know, maybe they kind of put in too much contrast or they kind of like, uh, I don't know what they did, but maybe they just said it, it, it turned it, up the saturation. Yeah, maybe a bit too much saturation, things like that, that they said mm. it, they were obviously trying to make it look even better. But maybe it just maybe that was where it looked a bit uh, unrealistic and a bit too blue in that situation. But uh, yeah. Uh, just to speak on the Battle of Winterfell for a moment. A lot of people considered this battle to fall flat in comparison to other Game of Thrones battles such as Hard Home and Battle of the Bastards, and definitely in comparison to battles such as Helm's Deep and Minas Tirith. The classic formula when facing endless enemies is and should always be the same. For example, Helm's Deep, at dawn, look to the east, the plan is to survive, buy time for Gandalf. At Minas Tirith, the plan is survive, buy time for Rohan to show up. In Avengers Endgame, the plan is to survive, buy time to discombobulate the Mind Stone, and at hard, hard, hard home, the plan is survive by time to evacuate the, the the village. Which 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 one is hard home? Hard home is. Do you remember the first time we really see all the like the dragons? What's called, the, like when no they... no the, the no the was that, that was high garden. Never mind. The first time the White Walkers attack the village, and there's like loads of zombies oh, with them, and they're like breaking yeah, through the yeah, gate. Yeah, yeah. And remember, they have that big standoff where John is looking back at the. Yeah, that's it's it's beyond the wall. Yeah, it's beyond the wall. Yeah, it's yeah, the first sorry. time that you see the Night King like raise up all the people mm. from the dead, and yeah, it's yeah. Pretty good. Sorry, I was completely thinking of the one where Jamie has his standoff with Daenerys, and he like charges at her on his horse, and then Bronn has to like. Uh, oh, that was dope! Dive at him, and, like uh, yeah, that was pretty class. Uh, although was class. we was already on his kind of like downward spiral at that stage but that's that I remember that episode yeah. that was class I still remember that was season 7 I believe and this is when people were saying the show was crap but I just remember after that episode my heart was in my mouth and I was like how can anyone hate this that show that episode like, was uh, really really good I remember that specifically but without this classic formula the victory feels hollow and unearned unless there is you know some other clever writing been done but the battle of winterfell didn't really have any of that the plan was just survive and i don't know get lucky and hope the night king exposes himself before the humans are all dead and i know bran was the bait but like the night king could have just not come after him but anyways it was it was and, a dumb formula yeah and also they were just like suddenly they gave us this reason why bran should be the bait like a half an hour before the battle starts and we're like wait this is our motivation we're getting it a half an hour before and we've had like seven or eight seasons already what's why would we not use any of the other motivations that we've already got for why yeah. he wants to wipe out the world of men it's just uh, i don't know yeah there's so so many things wrong with that with that final so many things just, but just uh, just the battle itself as well we the all battle kind of itself was, yeah that was like something that so many people were looking forward to and there'd been so many rumors that had been so built up for so long and how, how long did they spend shooting it like three months or something like that 
Yeah, something something crazy. And like just a like huge know. budget on that, and they were like, oh, it's gonna be an hour or you know over it's an hour of amazing. just just battle and just fighting, and it's gonna be amazing action. And it sequences. was cool. Like there were some really cool action sequences in it, uh, but I just think we're, we're going to get into why Helm's Deep is better in terms of like story beats and stuff. Well, exactly. And I mean, I think I probably watched that episode maybe twice. I, mean, I probably watched it initially and then probably watched it again later, maybe that week, just to get a second viewing of it. I, I don't think I've ever gone back to watch it again since because I've never been like, oh, that'd be really good to watch it. Cause it's just... I will be going back to watch the whole thing whenever this House of the Dragon comes out because I'm very excited for that. <laughs> Have you heard much about it? Um, no, again, I haven't really, I don't know. I'm, I'm still wounded. I know, the wound is still great. It's been like two years that I'm like, sort of just like, oh, I don't trust, I don't trust Game of Thrones anymore. I think the good thing is though, that Game of Thrones never had, it never had its final two books out before the show finished. We all knew that and we all know that was like one of the massive reasons for the slump. And of course then Dave and, what was his name? Dan and Dave or whatever, D, was, was it DB Wise or? Yeah. What the hell were those guys' names? Uh, yeah, they both like... Yeah, Dave and Dan. They both just like left and didn't care about it and went on to pursue Star Wars and Netflix and other things. Didn't they like not get... Didn't they get like kicked off Star Wars in the end or what? Yeah, I think so. I think they were like promised a trilogy for Star Wars and... And then people saw the fight for like season yeah. eight and they were like, wait a minute, you guys not. Ironic. They left to do that and now they're not getting it yeah i don't know man uh yeah they definitely are they went from being like some of the most loved and respected uh producers in hollywood by like everyone in the world and then suddenly within two seasons everyone's like we hate these guys ironic but i do have faith in this house of the dragon because i think it's fully written uh there's all mm. the backstory is there so i did and, i did and i've heard i did hear a couple of things i heard that like uh G, what's his name? Uh, G. R. Martin. J. J. R. R. Martin. George. George. <laughs> George. 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 Or. Or. Ronald Rule. Exactly. John Ronald Rule Martin. Uh, he, uh, apparently, he's back on as like an executive writer or something like that. Where yeah. like he had left for the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones. But um, yeah, and I've heard some people kind of given non-spoiler reviews of the book or books. I don't know. Is it one book or or many? Of the House of the Dragon, and they're like, mm. if you like Game of Thrones, this is gonna, you know, the shit's gonna hit the fan. And this one, there's huge dragons. There's so much like backstabbing and or yeah. you know, like going behind people's backs. And I don't know, it if just sounds like it's gonna yeah, be. Yeah, really cool. if the writing is anything like the first four seasons of Game of Thrones, it's uh, I'll I'll definitely be really into it because those yeah. those those first four seasons was some of the best television that's you know that I've seen uh, in a long long time. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with you there. But anyways, back to the Battle of Helm's Deep. The battle itself is 39 minutes long, and that doesn't include any of the five cutaway shots. So it's basically a mini movie. She's 39, but she still looks younger. And that's true. Well, it's actually 20 years old now, but she still looks young. 39 minutes, but she still looks younger. (laughs) (laughs) Right, cut that out. And like you said before on a previous podcast with the hero's journey, it really needs this because of the length of the battle itself, the ups and down dramatic effects and all the story beats, etc. Mm. And it's 39 minutes long. Uh, but you mean like that's just the, just where they're filming the, the Helm's Deep? Just because, the because obviously there's loads of parts during the battle that it cuts away and it shows what's mm. going on with like Merry and Pippin and what's going on with Frodo and Sam. 
and uh, yeah, there's so, there's five cutaway scenes, but not including those. Okay, it's 39 right, minutes, yeah, so yeah. it's still a big, big chunk of battle. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's class because that once the battle starts, I believe it goes on for over an hour until it finishes. But of course, that includes all yeah. the cutaways. So yeah, that's that's cool. Still nearly 40 minutes of non-stop battle battle sequence, which is pretty class. And one thing that the battle does so well, not just visually, but also the ability for the audience to have a sense of how the fighting is developing for each side, which is why the story beat is crucial, whether it's the anti- the anticipation of nervousness shown by the women and children in the caves before the fight, mm-hmm. or the feeling of winning when all the elven archers are annihilating the Uruks at the very start. You know the way oh, so all good. those arrows come over and it, it looks like the Urukai aren't even going to like reach the battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was always I've always like wanted to be one of those one of those guys under uh, under um, Haldir's command and just be like yeah like fleecing arrows and just like wiping out all the Uruks. Definitely one of the guys at the back. Yeah, except for I mean I don't I don't really like when Legolas says you know uh, their armor is weak at the neck and below the arm because I'm like maybe maybe two people heard him say that it's like say that in your battle plan before you're actually standing up on the wall you know. Maybe he was to... just making an observation when he saw them with his elven eyes, and he's like, "Oh, it's like, oh. their armor is weak at the neck and the sides and the bum. Shoot <laughs> them in the bum. <laughs> Shoot them when they're running away. Yeah, run away, run away, But then there is the feeling of vulnerability when the Uruks blow up the deeping wall and ram the gate, and then finally the feeling of hope mm. when the riders charge out of the Hornberg. So there is an emotional weight to every scene and it is in itself a story being told. And this is also aided by the amazing score of Howard Shore. As you know, each 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 part when there's like a negative thing happening, you hear the boom, 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 and then something good happens and oh, the heroic music comes in. We've we've spoken about this before on this podcast as well, but I, um, I think I shouted it out before as well. And I'm going to forget the name. A guy on YouTube called... Listening in. Listening in. Yes, thank you. And uh, I think I shouted out one of his episodes before. I think he has three episodes where he goes into Howard Shore and Lord of the Rings. And in one of the episodes, he's, he go, he explains kind of the way that the music flows through the scene of the Battle of Helm's Deep. And there's like the main theme. And then there's the theme of the Uruks. And then when, for example, when Legolas uh, slides down the stairs on his on his shield, just a little the um What's it called? Like, like the, the fellowship theme. Then the fellowship theme just rings out for about five seconds. Just it cuts through and then it goes back to whatever it was before. So Howard yeah. Shore was just like a master of like manipulating the, the, the music and the theme and just kind of adding in like, oh, here's the, we're going to. And we, I think we spoke about this before, you and me, maybe not on a podcast, but just how like I wonder what the the order is, as in if uh, or if maybe Howard Shore, if he even has any sort of say with Peter Jackson of where they should cut yeah. to uh, a reaction. For example, when the music is uh, playing in a certain way and then suddenly it changes and it goes like into this kind of like nervous feeling and it shows you a close up of some women in the cave and they're reacting and you're kind of going, who who did it at first? Was it like Peter Jackson said, you need to fit this music into the film or did Howard Shore like say, okay, because I don't know, maybe because Howard Shore obviously is such a big name, maybe Peter Jackson would actually take on board some of his advice and say, and if he's if he creates the music and he says to Peter Jackson, maybe at this point it would be a good idea to put in an image of somebody who's a bit terrified or whatever. Not obviously not just direct the entire thirty nine minutes of the battle, but you know 
maybe like small little shots here and there he might actually have some say in the matter but um, i've no idea well what i would imagine is that peter jackson has has filmed everything and he knows he's directed every single thing the way he wants it and he's like right i'm gonna have first of all the let's say the elves shooting and then the ladders come up and then the urukai are going to shoot back and howard shore is like okay i'm going to write music over this and he's like right so peter if possible you know if this scene that of the elves shooting first is going to be eight seconds long then make sure that it's eight seconds and not nine seconds and like if you have an extra second cut it off at the beginning or the end and then i'm going to go into Hmm. you know the next scene which is four seconds and that's the music is going to change a little bit and peter's like oh but i want this you know i took a 12 second shot of this and he's like okay but either make it four or eight do you know that kind of way so has to work musically but I don't know. That's just my guess. Yeah, because obviously, obviously, music is very rhythmic, and so you can't just be like mm. uh, cutting out like a half a second here or whatever. So, uh, but I still also think that maybe we could be completely wrong, and it could be just that Peter Jackson has everything completely shot and done with no music, and he just gives that to Howard Shore and says, "Do with this what you will," and uh, Howard Shore just goes, "Boom." Yeah, I don't know though. I know because it just seems like such a difficult task, but I think that Howard Shore is probably just such a genius that he's able to do that. He's, you know, he's up to the task. But like th- things like the the legless shield thing, that like the way the music comes in, bum, 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 yeah. like it comes in really quick and it has to be that amount of time. It can't like if Peter Jackson wanted to make that scene 10 seconds when the music only fills up about five seconds or six seconds, you know, I don't know what it is, but there's there's no way he would, they would have to be, talking together well imagine legolas slides down the stairs and imagine that scene took six seconds and the theme was four seconds it wouldn't be it wouldn't feel out of place if you saw legolas for the first second and there's no music and then there's no music in the last second either so i think the way he just puts it in you just see oh it's so cool that we can hear the fellowship team while legolas is doing this we don't think it's exactly it starts exactly when legolas Legolas, uh, is shown and then it ends as as soon as uh, it goes to something else so i think it's probably not as exact second by second as maybe we're thinking, but it just feels like yeah. that to the to the viewer. Maybe. And if anybody knows, uh, please let us know. If, if anyone's like worked on a movie yeah. as, I don't know, a musical director or something. I don't know. That'd be class. Just worked on a movie in general. Yeah. Just, just please let us know how it works. I'd love to know that. That'd be so, I don't know. I've always just had these kind of like questions and. I don't know where to. I don't know where to go. I don't know who's going to tell me. So please, yeah, if, if anybody, if any of our listeners, if any of our listeners know anything about that, we'd, uh, we have, we have no idea. So as you, as you can obviously tell, <laughs> as you can hear, <laughs> questions that need answering. <laughs> Let this be the hour when we draw swords together. So many movies and stories follow the same formula of an inciting incident, growing obstacles mini triumphs and finally a climax when all hope is lost so the story of the battle is told like any normal story with an inciting incident so the first arrow shot by that guy with only one eye then we've got the growing obstacles such as you know ladders and ballistas the explosion haldir's death the gate breach and that's when you hear all the music like and then we've got uh, <laughs> then we've got like mini triumphs such as Legolas's shield skating, which we just talked about, and Aragorn and Gimli's jump to the bridge to fight, and you notice the triumphant fellowship heroic music, and then finally the heroic charge out and Gandalf's arrival when it seems that the heroes are cornered and all hope is lost, mm-hmm. and even King Théoden 
who is known for inspiring hope, cannot see past the death and destruction and merely charges out for death and glory. What can man do against such reckless hate? <laughs> I, I think I have to call you out because I think uh, the guy that shoots the first arrow at Helm's Deep is not the guy with one eye. The guy with one eye is the oh, guy sorry. that spins around and shouts like, fire! And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's at a different stage. But uh, yeah. You are the, correct. Yeah, it's just some owl lad who's just a bit trigger happy. And what a shot as yeah, well. Yeah, no, like. he, he just seems a, a little bit like kind of fidgety. He reminds me of Granny when she's pouring my cup of tea or something. <laughs> well, he's just, he's just old and timid. And like, have you ever shot a bow and arrow? When you pull back that string, the tension that's in it is like, you know, you need to be pretty uh, pretty fit and in in uh, good yeah. in good nick. You need to be in good physical shape to to be able to I've hold shot that. Bows and arrows with you? You sure have. You sure have. You know, I, I shot them at you. <laughs> I'd, yeah, yeah. I had to watch me back. I had to watch me back. You have to watch your arrows. <laughs> it's big enough. Yeah, no, but that guy when he whenever I watch that scene of that old guy and he like he lets loose on that first arrow, I'm always thinking like that's an incredible shot, especially after Legless had just said like you know. The, get them in the neck or get them under the right arm in the neck, yeah. and he gets them right in the neck and I'm always like how is everybody not like applauding that and be like dude what a shot because like, I always thought it'd be so funny if like he accidentally like you know lets go of his bow and arrow and the arrow just drops short and just like hits the ground <laughs> with, like, just hits absolutely nobody and everyone's just like what the hell all the other guy are like what the hell was that I do think though like no matter where you shoot, you're bound to kill an Urukai in that in that like field of Urukai. I know, but he, but he but like he shot someone that's in the very front row. So I was like, if that was just like you know one meter short, it would have hit nobody out of like all ten thousand Urukai that are standing there. He would have hit zero, and like yeah, he would be like oh sorry, let me just do that again. I I also kind of wonder about that scene as well. Why don't once they realize that they're in range of the arrows, why do they like? Go hold. Why don't you just start shooting immediately? Because clearly they're in range. What are they waiting for? I know the the tension of the battle and you know everything has to be mm. dramatic. But yeah, like that's in real in real life, I I assume you just wait until they're in range and once yeah. there you just let them loose. Yeah, I don't know. They were like they what? I don't know. It was weird. Yeah, it was, it was almost like letting them do their little like fear hacker hack. Yeah, because I was just about to say it's it's like. It's like when you're watching New Zealand playing rugby and like, you know, the other team have to respect the hack and have to watch it or like, you know, let, let them do it. And it's quite intimidating and they can get into the heads of the other of the other team. But in a battle like at Helm's Deep, there's no like, uh, I don't know, there's no rule saying you need to wait and then yeah. the referee will blow the whistle and say, OK, you can go now. But so I was just like, yeah, I agree with you. Once they're in range, just let loose. Go at them. Do you know why they actually started doing that big, like, smashing the pikes on the ground? I think while they were filming, there was a couple of, obviously, New Zealander extras, and they were just, like, waiting around. And I think, you know, they're they're also used to doing the hacker, and they were kind of doing this thing with the pikes while they were waiting mm. offset. And Peter Jackson just loved it so much. He was like, yeah, get that in. Oh, man, the New Zealand hacker is so cool. I've, uh, I used to live in Australia, and I had a couple of mates that were Kiwis. And... Whenever we would go out for like nights out or something that we'd have a few beers in the house before we went out. And sometimes after like <laughs> two or three beers, like the the, the the Kiwi guys would always start doing hackers and like take the shirts off and do the hacker in the house. And like all of the rest of us were just like Class. kind of going, please, please do a hacker. <laughs> they were like, yeah. all right, OK, OK. And uh, it's just it's so cool. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> so much death. What can men do against such reckless hate? 
Uh, so the the hero's journey or formulaic story arc is what keeps viewers interested, but the amount of contrast is what keeps them invested. So there are close-up hand-to-hand combat shots, contrasting with sweeping crane shots of the whole battle. There are moments of comedy with Legolas and Gimli, contrasting with moments of tragedy, such as Haldir's death. There's moments of darkness, contrasting with moments of light when Gandalf arrives. So these are all small but clever filming, mm. uh, uh, f- filmmaking elements that have been used to perfectly create one of the greatest battles of all time, in my opinion. Wow, yeah, uh, yeah, really well explained. Um... Yeah, it's amazing the amount of different emotions. <laughs> it's amazing the, the amount of different emotions that you can fit into one battle. And like you said, there's moments where it's like heartbreaking, where you see Haldir dying. Other moments at the very beginning where Legolas and Gimli are joking about, you know, he needs to get him a box. Two already. And their little competition counting all the, all the kills. Uh, you know, that's just a humorous idea as well. And it kind of takes away the kind of tension for at least mm. a couple of seconds where you're kind of going... Ah, oh, you know, they're in control. They're just like getting their kill counts up, so they're fine. But then yeah. there are other yeah, just just a lot of lot of ups and downs, and that's um that's just good it's just good writing. I do think one of the funniest things in that battle is probably when Gimli and Legolas are counting their kills, but then you just when Gimli's like up on top of yeah you just hear him <laughs> echoing over the whole battle <laughs> <laughs> that must be terrifying for the uruk guy they're like he's yeah. killed 22 already oh my god <laughs> another way he's just standing there as well like ladder in each side of him he's like yeah <laughs> there's nothing you can do like there's just a little dwarf up there killing all of our men yeah exactly that's like i mean if they had that entire top of the deeping wall just all dwarves standing on the top of that wall <laughs> yeah. they, there was no way any uruk guy were getting up there like why didn't they think of that? Exactly. That's brilliant. I always find it funny then as well how Legolas had like a 17 kills when Gimli had two. Like he had 17 kills about 30 seconds into the battle. And then the next day they're doing like their final count. And Leg- he's got a couple he's got, more. He's got, like he's got, he's got 20 something more. No, he's got, yeah, he's got 42 is Legolas' yeah. final count. And whereas Gimli has 43. Yeah. And um, I'm like, what, Legolas, did you go for a nap or something? Like what, what yeah. happened to that? Because in, I'm like, Legolas, are you lying to yourself? Because I've seen you kill more than 43 exactly, in yeah, that yeah. battle alone. <laughs> yeah, for sure. sure. Just shooting that ladder and knocking all them, does does that still only count as one? Still only counts as one, yeah. <laughs> he killed at least 100 Urukai there. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And that was, that was after he'd already killed 17, so yeah, I, I agree. I don't know, I think he's just being... Being modest. Being modest, yeah. Final count, 42. Yeah, it's just a really cool battle. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really love a lot of it. I really love a lot of um, Gimli's uh, involvement in that battle as well. I kind of, you know, he, obviously we know that Gimli uh, provides a lot of comedy, and and I know a lot of people kind of don't like that Gimli. They think that it's kind of like disrespectful of Gimli or something like that. But I don't think yeah. that I don't think there's anything disrespectful about his kind of comedic element in it. I think that's just like one part of his personality. But then also in that film, or sorry, in that scene where you, you mentioned it earlier, where Gimli jumps off the wall to try and save Aragorn. That's, that really shows you Gimli's true qualities and his, his true character as well. His heroism. He yeah. jumps he jumps straight into like, uh, I don't know, there's probably about 50 Urukai just there and he just jumps straight in without a, without a concern for his own well-being just because he's like, well, obviously I'm going to do this because my mate Aragorn's in trouble there, so uh, why wouldn't I? And then he comes up out of the water and he starts taking them all on until... Uh, until he gets knocked over and then all the elves uh, let loose and shoot them all. But uh, He just loves murder. He loves killing. 
Yeah, he's on a he's on a like a murderous rampage. There's a a TV show out at the moment. I'm sure you've heard of it. I don't think you've watched any of it though. Bad Batch, which mm. is like Star Wars, um, yeah, animation. But I was just kind of thinking that one of the main characters in it, Wrecker, he's very like Gimli in the fact that he doesn't have too many lines, but he's just there at the back and he's always like, "Oh, I want to kill some droids or whatever." And he, all all he wants to do is just blow things up and murder things, and that's kind of like Gimli as well. Like, <laughs> He just gets excited for, do you know when Aragorn's like, let's hunt some orc. And he's yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, that, his moments to shine are just like whenever someone mentions like killing or I don't know, anything of that category. It's definitely, it's definitely his favorite pastime. Just like yeah. murder and blood sport. I just seen his CV. <laughs> I, <laughs> I outscored a pointy eared elvish prince. Uh, yeah, that's 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 his thing. Like he's just all he's obsessed with is getting up, getting his kill count up, and he probably just wants to like beat Rambo's kill count in like uh, first yeah. blood. It's like right, first blood. How many kills do you get? I'm gonna do better. Listen, if you ever need anybody murdered, please give me a call. You get, you're I'm very giving him discreet. a card. I have no code of ethics. I will kill anyone, anywhere, children, animals, old people, doesn't matter. I just love killing. So a couple of things about the the Battle of Helm's Deep. I just want to ask you a couple of questions here. So first of all, the good guys are the Rohirrim and, and uh, elves. Why well, why doesn't Helm's Deep have a second gate? If you look at any castle anywhere, there's always a second gate or a third or a fourth. In medieval times, when they bashed through the first one, they'd have to come into this like enclosure where loads of people could shoot arrows in. And yeah, it's not really a nitpick, but it's it's the design of Helm's Deep, and it is a cool design. Well, they but... do, don't they? They have like they have the initial uh, gate uh, that you know you have to go up that that like really narrow ramp to get up to. So first of all, I suppose. You know, that's the only one. Theoden says that there's like no, the you know nobody has ever breached it. So like it's just they maybe they maybe it's an oversight because they just don't expect anybody to get in. But when they when the Urukai mm. do get in, then they say like you know fall back to the keep, and that's like you they go into the keep, and there's still there's like uh, that area where mm, they can still go and uh, like get protection inside there, and they can get like refuge because there is another area outside. But obviously it's more just like a big building, I suppose. It's not really like what you're saying that yeah, yeah it's not really a no. Good I, I mean. There's there's one gate. If you look at it, most medieval castles, there would be a second gate where that gate that first gate is. So basically, you break through the first gate and then you come into almost a room and there's nothing in front of you other than another gate. Hmm. But right. Helm's Deep only has the one gate and then it actually has a second floor, but there's no gate for that second floor either. You can just walk straight up there. Yeah, and yeah. Then behind that is the keep itself. And the keep... like. Sure. If you look at most medieval castles, they have gates everywhere because you build castles to defend yourself. Love a good gate. <laughs> Love a good gate in the morning, I do. Brace the gate! Another thing would be no defense in front of the deeping wall, which is kind of crazy. They don't have a moat or a ditch or even, I don't know, some spikes or difficult terrain. You can just easily... Like plant your ladders there. They could have planted a few thistles out there, even you know, just to yeah. give them a, a few. Nettles, yeah. yeah, exactly. Stings. Get them some spikes into their feet. They wouldn't like that. It's yeah, it's kind of funny because again, if you see other castles in medieval times, they would if if they couldn't afford to have water or a moat around it, they would have like a a big hill going up to the going up to the walls so it just meant that if they wanted to bring ladders it would be impossible to kind of plant them or mm. you know they'd have to be ginormous ladders now i know they kind of did that in the movies they brought massive ladders which was cool as well yeah yeah i don't know i think as i said before um 
just because the success that Helm's Deep has had had in the past, and like they were just kind of so uh, overconfident, I maybe. Know, they were almost yeah, so overconfident, and they were they just were basically just had this idea that nobody has ever breached this, and nobody will ever breach it because the wall is so strong, the wall is so deep and so high, and obviously you can't just like you were saying like have a hill you can't just have a hill where there is no hill so yeah i suppose i mean i mean the initial construction yeah but maybe for that reason they thought this is a nice area you know with our back to the mountain and we can like uh put this yeah. huge wall just across the front and block it off and then obviously the wall goes into the side of the mountain so uh they did you know it didn't need to be like a 360 degree wall all the way around their, their castle they just needed to maybe yeah. invest all of the money they had in Maybe a three sixty wall and put all of that together in just that short little area across the across they the spent front. wisely. Yeah, exactly. They, <laughs> you know, that strategic strategic planning of that the deeping wall. But I don't know. I, I agree with you. Maybe it's a bit of an oversight. I think that there is. They definitely as soon as they breached the the gate, it was just way too easy for them to get in. Uh, like to, to as far as the keep and to yeah. destroy everything. And breaching the wall as well when they when they blew that up, like. You kind of wonder why didn't they cover the tunnel? Or now maybe they just didn't imagine that. Again, yeah, they they'd never seen they'd were... never seen anything like that before, and like uh, yeah, like, okay, you know. that's that's fair enough. So yeah, yeah, we can overlook that. One of the things though that is kind of silly about it, and this is only you know obviously the deeping wall looks cool and all, but if you actually compare it to real life castles, the crenellations in the wall, which are the like the little gaps for normally where the archers would shoot out they're actually few and far between so they're almost completely ineffective because on the deeping wall the the wall doesn't even cover the height of the archer like every archer it, sure. it goes up to like their belly and except for Gimli. you can see that except for Gimli yeah it'd be perfect for a bunch of dwarves on that wall but if you see but you the, mean like the, there still should be like there still should be some very like thin slits of windows so that they can shoot they, out they should be completely covered if it was like a normal medieval castle they should be completely covered and there should be loads of little crenellations and mm. there are actual crenellations on Helm's Deep but it doesn't do anything whatsoever it just kind of gives Gimli a little I don't know he's able to look out there but every single archer is every single archer is, is open to be shot is exposed to the Urukai. yeah yeah I think again and they're able to shoot I think again for me I thought that was <laughs> Speaking about whether or not this is realistic and we're speaking about fantasy, but I'm saying I think it's a little yeah. <laughs> bit unrealistic how easily the Urukai were like running and shooting a crossbow and actually hitting an elf who was, you know, uh, as you said, like maybe they were exposed from their chest up, but also mm. because of the elevation, if the if the Urukai are looking up at them, they can probably only just see a very small part of like maybe just their head or, you know, because they're if you're standing at a thick wall with uh, that's up to your chest, you're obviously not standing behind the wall, but you're standing on one side, and so it's about a, like a meter deep. So just the urukai, mm. I don't, I just don't think they had access to actually hit the the elves uh, in the chest or whatever. I think yeah. it was a little bit, uh, well, like you know, you'd have to be this like amazing urukai archer to be able to do it. And uh, I don't know. Maybe they just showed the two or three that actually connected. Maybe there was like hundreds, possibly that just went over over the wall and killed the archers behind. <laughs> yeah, we didn't see too many. Uh, we didn't see too many archers actually getting uh, shot. Like most of the, we, we saw a few initially uh, when basically they were shooting their crossbows as they were trying to plant the, the the first ladders, and then most people were killed, I suppose, by the ladders going up and the orc actually climbing over the wall. I've one final gripe about the the good guys. I've got a gripe as well. I, I, okay, I, yeah, I, I you, wonder if it's going to be. You tell me your gripe. My gripe is with Aragorn and Gimli 
put their put their lives on the line, put their bodies on the line, and they go out and they like oh, yeah. they absolutely like wipe out all of the urukai that are charging the the gate, and mm. they do that. They hold off again, like you were speaking about. Why do they? What's the purpose of this? To to get time to give to give somebody else time for whatever they need to do. And what was the purpose of that? It was to give Theoden and the other Rohirrim time to rebuild the gate and to put that barricade again in place. And as soon as Theoden says, all right, guys, get out of there, and they move out of the way, it's like Theoden just says, all right, that's it, fall back to the keep. Like, literally within about 10 seconds, he says, fall back to the keep. Yeah. They all just run away and abandon the gate, and then the Urukai break through it. And I'm like, what, what, yeah. I mean, what was the point of that? That was. And also, where is Theoden expecting them to go? Like, are they supposed to jump back? I don't think so. Like, it just so happens that Legolas turns Who? up with... Uh, Aragorn and Gimli? Yeah, he goes, ah, okay. get out of there! And they're like, okay. And then he, then he sees them getting, like, into a chokehold and then he goes, okay, bye. Yeah, get out of there. And they're like, okay, open the door and let us in. <laughs> yeah, could you let, let us in there, please? Like, just so happens Legolas happened to be there. He wasn't busy fighting. He was like, oh, I just have this giant rope and I'm going to throw down and I have the strength to pull two fat men up i think yeah i i don't know if it shows but I, i've always just assumed that legolas wasn't pulling that rope on his own because uh i thought maybe there's a couple of people behind him as well helping him or something like that because yeah he took uh, the credit for it though yeah well maybe elves are just freakishly strong i don't know yeah yeah so that's one of my little gripes it's just like after all their work to give pain and time and to give his men time to like rebuild the the door and to like put that put that back in place that they mm. just they just concede it so easily and they just kind of say all right fall back to the keep let's go and they, then they let them all in yeah i mean they rebuilt the, the door at least show us a few more scenes of them breaking down that second door and then getting through rather than just running away from it you know i don't know i guess there was a second gate after all there you go the first gate was destroyed and they just rebuilt it exactly if they break through we just throw out aragorn and gimli so that they can kill them all <laughs> while we build the second gate yeah So I have another little gripe. Uh, after the explosion, when Aragorn wakes up, you remember when he wakes up mm-hmm. and he kind of looks up and then all the elves fire and kill like everyone coming into that little that little entrance, that little hollow part in the wall. And they absolutely annihilate everyone. And then Aragorn goes, okay, let's go. And then like turns the sword and they all charge. Why the hell did they do that? If they just fired, if they just kept firing... First of all, that, that hole is so narrow that it would have been hard for the Urukai to like get in quicker than the arrows were firing at them. And eventually, not not even eventually, just after a couple of minutes, the bodies would have like packed up way too much that the Urukai wouldn't be able to get through. Built a new wall, a wall of Urukai bodies. Yeah, they would have like hmm. I don't know why they charged at all because I've never th- I've never thought about suicide. that. Before. Like it's cool, but it is cool. Um it's kind of a dumb the, tactic. The music that comes in as soon as like Aragorn says charge and then that like the music yeah. of the elves comes in and it's like Yeah, I don't know really. Maybe I don't know, maybe they were out of arrows. Uh, who knows? Um, maybe, yeah. They all use their final arrow. Exactly. Also, Gimli was still underwater at that time. That, when, that is true, yeah. When, uh, Aragorn was probably trying to save him. Yeah, he was like, we need to not just stand back and shoot, we need to actually get there and, and get Gimli out because Gimli had just saved his life. So yeah. that was probably his main concern. Also, you were saying, I don't know how many Urukai could actually get through. The amount of time it takes, well, I suppose I was going to say it takes a while for you to like reload your bow, but the elves don't seem to take any time at all. So ah, they're, they're pros. quick. Um, because also when they charge... The pros on their bows. Yeah, <laughs> uh, bow pros. 
when they actually charge, it takes them about five seconds to run that distance. And when they reach them, there's like already a full army, it looks like, of Urukai there. There's like a huge number of, of Urukai that have already come through that yeah. big gap. So that's because they've charged for ages and they ran when they should have been shooting and let them all in. Mm, right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think it's, yeah, I agree. I, uh, I understand. And, but I also like that charge. It's really cool. So yeah, yeah, it is cool. And again, that's obviously something that, like, as a movie director or as somebody that's going to be like planning a war and planning a battle those are two very different things because as if you're planning a battle you're not going to be like oh let's do this because it's going to look really cool you're going to be like yeah let's yeah. stay alive but peter jackson's going to be I saying know. these are these are silly nitpicks yeah exactly because the movie or the, the battle scene and that sequence is just so amazing and so perfect it's really difficult to find nitpicks and uh, to have mm. any gripes really but we're gonna we're gonna be some morning Michaels today and see if we can try and find some little like hmm, this wasn't exactly up to standard, but uh, I don't even agree with myself in a lot of things that I'm saying. I never agree with myself, hmm. but I do have one question: Why the hell? Well, I have lots of questions, but another question is: Why the hell do the Urukai all have pikes, and especially at the front? Like I know it's intimidating and such, but I think you could probably there's probably a pike for every single Urukai. And like when they run to the front and like put up the ladders, is there just like mountains of pikes just left at the floor so that the Urukai can run up? And what the hell is the point of that? Like at the front, maybe they should have had loads of like. Do shields. we see any Urukai using pikes? Do we see them using them apart from just like you know? Yeah, we see we see like we see them when, for example, when the after the explosion when they come in uh, through that little gap. They're, oh they're all, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then yeah, and then yeah, of and course then, when Gandalf arrives. Yeah, exactly. And also yeah, they get that one elf who just like. When they when they charge and, and Ar- Aragorn like swings his sword and like knocks the pikes all the way and then one of their elf mm. just like runs straight into the pikes. <laughs> you got going, Oh, that's gross. Maybe that was because Aragorn moved the, a pike out of his way and it went into the way of the other elf. And you're like, Aragorn just uh, somehow was a, a you know, he second degree murder, maybe, where he didn't intend yeah. to kill that elf, but uh, he got him. <laughs> Deflected. Assist. Unintentionally, yeah, yeah. Like I, I think most of the Urukai at the front anyways, they should have had shields like lots of lots of big shields to stop the arrows coming through and maybe some archers they're probably thinking like look sure we've got enough of us the guys at the front will be the shields for the people at the back and that's true and there weren't archers because that's not their style but they did have crossbows uh, that's what i mean some uh, of crossbow them, yeah. Like. yeah they had a few of them i think it was just the intention was just it was and again they weren't they didn't want to like stand back and have like a archery battle because they had no protection so i suppose the idea was just charge get to the wall get the ladders up and get over that wall and we're going to lose loads of people from the front row so hmm. the people from the back are going to have to just kind of uh, take over and yeah we don't i don't know if you see any moments where they're putting the ladders down and there's just dead bodies everywhere which uh, maybe would have been <laughs> just more like realistic. ramming the ladders into the the dead or guy they're slipping That's, this this ladder is a bit unstable it's a bit wobbly here what's going on they're like yeah it's on top of like that uruk's head and you're like all right okay yeah. fair enough well one side of it is on 10 urukai and the other is only yeah. on eight <laughs> exactly we need to kill more, two more urukai and stick them under the under this one throw them under <laughs> they didn't need ladders they just need you know you've got a wobbly table and you're in the pub and you have to get like a beer mat and like fold it over a couple of times yeah. and like stick it under one side to, to level it out like they're like doing that with their ladders let's just get two more bodies and stick it under this side of the ladder and uh, yeah, that, yeah. That, that'll who le- volunteers that'll level it out yeah get a few berserkers they're happy to kill themselves I was just thinking as well the the guys at the back must have been having a great time like they didn't get to see any action at all like they <laughs> they just kind of were waiting and then eventually it was like daytime and someone's like 
We're running away now. What? <laughs> we're running away? Oh yeah, we're running into the forest. Okay, run. <laughs> There's so many of them. Like. It's kind of like in Life of Brian when uh, they're listening to Jesus' speech. <laughs> the Chinese whispers. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're listening to Jesus' speech and he's like so far away. They're like, what? What's he saying? Speak up. Speak like, up. Uh, blessed, are the, blessed are the cheese makers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Blessed are the Greek. What? The Greek? No, no, the meat. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's nice. Oh, yeah. It's good for them. They never get anything. So, yeah, maybe that's what the Uruk were, were like. They were, they were down the back. They were like, what's going on? I can't see anything. Um, Would you like me to find you a box? <laughs> I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. So this is a section called Keep It Secret, where we do the exact opposite, where we disclose secrets from behind the scenes from the filming of Lord of the Rings. So, first question I put to you, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. How long did they spend filming this, the Battle of Helm's Deep? I, I think when we were speaking earlier about the, the, the battle for Winterfell, I think I said something like three months for that scene. I think this one was definitely a lot shorter than that. I don't know, maybe I'm confusing them up, maybe this one was three months, but I think it was probably not so long. I think it was probably about, I don't know, three weeks or something like that of like night scenes or, I don't know. I, I've definitely heard it, but I, I, I have not stored that information in my brain. <laughs> well, you can store it now because it actually took three months of night shoots there and then go. one month of day shoots filming this. So four months in total. Right. So when I said earlier, when we were speaking about the Battle of Winterfell, three months, obviously I had that number in my head because I had that length of time in my head because of... I think Helm's it is similar Deep. for that as well. Is it? Yeah. I think it I think it is like three or four months. I, I can't remember. But I don't... Uh, yeah. But if, if I remember a number like three months for one reason, it's... I've definitely... Yeah. I don't know if I've ever even seen the making of the Battle of Winterfell, but I've seen the making of uh, Helm's Deep loads of times. So... That's definitely where I got that figure from earlier on. So, uh, yeah, that's why. Yeah. Four months total, but three months of night shoots. Four months total. Wow. And day shoots. Uh, one, one month. For for what? For like the, the final for all scenes? The, or? I, I assume so. Like um, the morning? The morning, Gandalf's charge, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, but we, but the the filming of Helm's Deep was extremely complicated. It went on for so long that all the extras were given T-shirts that read "I survived Helm's Deep." So oh, like, they had to like section some people off to the dead people, and you know, just so that they wouldn't reuse extras again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was there was actually twenty hours of footage all edited down to thirty nine minutes, which is pretty impressive. How many hours? Twenty. Twenty hours. It's like doing one of these podcasts. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> cut all that shite out <laughs> yeah so for all of our listeners we talk a lot of rubbish and we have to cut it all out it goes on for about two days yeah. we edit it down to about 45 minutes yeah <laughs> director's cut yeah check us out on patreon where you can get the 20 hour footage <laughs> um so i've got another question here for you mm. which lord of the rings character almost made an appearance at helm's deep before being cut is it an elf it is an elf is it arwen it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd heard that. Well before. done. Mm. Yeah, so originally Arwen was to be included in the fighting force of elves who joined the men. Liv Tyler had even trained with sword fighters in preparation for her scenes when the decision to remove her was made by the writers who realized that this approach wasn't working. So Arwen, who doesn't appear in the individual book of the two towers, was ultimately reworked into the story 
by lifting elements from the appendices at the back of the novel, utilising flashbacks to her and Aragorn at Rivendell. So it took writers about a year to come up with this solution. But I, I think there actually are some like behind the scenes, like extra, extra cut things, like deleted scenes of her being there for the planning of the battle and all that, which is um, which is cool. Yeah, exactly. That would have been it would have been really cool. Again, I think people would have been um, kind of angry at uh, Arwen showing up again and taking another role yeah. that whatever she wasn't like, as in people are already annoyed enough at how she was the one who rescued Frodo um, and uh, like instead of Glorfindel ex- yeah. instead of Glorfindel and like took him to um, to Rivendell and then like mm. uh, got, uh, like was there when the, the Nazgul were washed away in the river um, so people are already annoyed enough about that like I mean I, I don't care about that I think that was cool um, and yeah. as we've said many times before we saw the movies before we read the book so I had no massive attachment to, to Glorfindel uh, at that stage so um, but yeah, maybe people would have been a little bit uh, irked if uh, Arwen was just showing up again in like another part where uh, she, yeah. she had no business of being. But another scene that you were saying that another, maybe we did, we don't get too many uh, women warrior scenes. And so maybe it would have been cool to see Arwen fighting in there and uh, in that scene. And also, I know I've seen, I've seen a lot of behind the scenes footage of Eowyn fighting at Helm's Deep. And there's some yeah. really cool uh, you can probably find them on YouTube. There's some really cool uh, footage of her fighting against the Urukai and uh, at the Urukai and the like, caves, it, it had yeah. made it into the caves where the women and children were, and she defended the women and children. And that obviously got didn't make the the final cut, but again, that would have been a really cool scene to to, to see. Yeah, I had that down as another one, but I think there's only like a couple of seconds of footage. But yeah, they they were going to include that, but they ended up cutting it, and it's not even in the extended edition, which sucks. Yeah. Mm. But I have another question here for you. Which famous historic battle does Helm's Deep reference in its numbers? When I mean numbers, I mean like the amount of men versus the amount of Urukai. Oh, I've no idea. I've got there's not even any point in me hazarding a guess. You're gonna to have to let me. Uh, no, there is. You you will oh, wait. notice. Oh wait, if, hang on. Uh, think about the numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is it the sound them out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's the the the, the Spartans, isn't it? The, uh, the 300. Yes, well done. This is Sparta! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, there's absolutely no chance I'm going to get this. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the famous Battle of the Spartans. Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's cool. I, I had no idea that they had any uh, uh, connection. Yeah, so in, in the movie, Legolas talks to Aragorn about 300 men taking on 10,000 Urukai, which is a reference to the Spartan battle at the Thermopylae. Therm- Thermopylae. I don't know where three hundred thermometer, thermometer, yeah, where three hundred Spartans held off an invasion of ten thousand Persians, and actually Faramir, the the actor David Denham, would go on to star in the movie Three Hundred. Mm. So that's a little uh, connection there. Wow, and I'm assuming that that's completely uh, Jackson's thing. It's got nothing to do with Tolkien getting that that uh, inspiration because, yeah. of course, in the books it wasn't three hundred men. I think it was around three thousand men. Um, it was it was around one it was around two thousand men. There was one thousand there initially, and another a further one thousand showed up to, right. to help out. Okay, so two thousand men, yeah, and so. they weren't elves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So obviously, obviously, make, making them have only three hundred men and having such a small number, it meant it was so much more necessary that they got that backup from the elves, and so that's why it was really cool when they came in the movies. Mm-hmm. But of course. In the in the books, yeah, there was already a, lo- a slightly larger number. Still, two thousand against more than ten thousand was not a good. Uh, they're not great odds, yeah. but um, yeah. 
it was still a David and Goliath situation. Hmm. And in the books, the Urukai were between ten and twenty thousand. I don't think it's actually specified how many. Definitely more than ten thousand anyway, because Aragorn yeah. just kind of says they're ten thousand at least, and it was like at least, yeah. yeah. And so I believe, and when you see them on camera as well, you're like. That's that's at least that's that, that's a football stadium of, of Urukai there. That's like, like Aragorn that's like, had a concussion when he was counting them. Though. Exactly, I don't think we can rely on him at all. And normally, when you're concussion, you see double. He must be like C in half or something. <laughs> <laughs> and not just Uruks as well. In the book, there were orcs, there were Urukai, there were half orcs, there were goblin men, and Dunlendians are sorry, Dunlendings, which are men of Dunland, and as guardians, yeah, as guardians of the galaxy. Mm. As guardians of the galaxy back together again. On the wall of Helm's Deep during the battle, a one-eyed warrior turns to the camera, who we talked about, revealing his scarred, empty socket. The performer who played him showed up as an extra, wearing an eye patch, and director Peter Jackson politely asked to see what was under the patch, (laughs) and then inquired if the gentleman would be interested in appearing in the movie Sans Eye Patch. The gentleman was reluctant at first and quite self-conscious, but afterward he said the experience had made him more comfortable with his condition. Isn't that nice? Right. So is, is is it a condition? Did he just have no eye or did, had he lost it in a certain like accident? Yeah, I suppose. I don't know, but it's a condition, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I lost it in some sort of set of circumstances. I don't know if that's called a condition. I think a condition is a word used for like a medical uh, illness or something like that. Well, it was a word I lifted directly from IMDB. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. I wanted to ask you as well, do you know how uh, Peter Jackson created the Urukai's war chants? Or, like, how did he film that? Or how did he get the sound for all the Urukai? So, what was his inspiration? Or what was the actual sound? Or Yeah, yeah, exactly. How did he... He would have gotten a lot of people together. Do you know how he would have went about doing this? No, I don't. I have no idea. I'm just trying to think now. Uh, I think obviously we, we, we referenced the... The Haka earlier, and like it's, uh, yeah. I'm imagining he's probably just got some Kiwis that were hanging around there that like could do the Haka, and he was like, Right, guys, here, grabs <laughs> grab some sticks and start banging and start shouting. And uh, I've no idea though, I'm, I'm curious. It's actually, well, I'm kind of cheating here because it's not really for um Helm's Deep, it's kind of more for the reveal of the 10,000 Urukai. And what Peter Jackson did was he filled a cricket stadium f- full of 25,000 people. And then he led them in chanting the words Derb Gu Nash Gru Derb Gu Dash Shu. So basically Class. he was he, he spelled it out on the diamond vision screen mm. as well and he was leading the crowd. Oh, so wow. it kinda it's it's kinda similar to like a Bobby McFerrin concert or something where he's just like directing thousands of people That's going. So cool. That'd be pretty cool. I'd love to see footage of that. I, I haven't I haven't seen any. Oh, that sounds incredible. And speaking of Bobby McFerrin, yeah. I've seen him more than twice live in concert and if you ever want to go to an amazing concert experience Bobby McFerrin is, uh, is the man for you um, yeah. or go to see Peter Jackson or go to see Peter Jackson and uh, you can yeah. sing uh, Uruk chants and that'd be pretty class as well uh, I'd never I'd never heard that before that's really cool that's a really cool fact also earlier in John Reese davies life, uh, he's the actor that plays Gimli, he'd lost the tip of his middle finger in a farm accident. For filming purposes, <laughs> the special effects team made him wear a prosthetic fingertip from a cast of his right middle finger. While filming, he decided to prank Peter Jackson 
by cutting the prosthetic finger and filling it with fake blood. He just simply went up to Jackson uh, <laughs> in agonizing pain saying, boss, I had an accident, <laughs> which like terrified Jackson. Oh, my he God. Almost crapped his pants. Oh, man, that's like. That must have been like I, I that, that must be such like a I don't know a horrible feeling for a director but like when uh, Aragorn chipped his tooth and uh, Viggo yes, Viggo Mortensen ch- chipped his tooth and uh, uh, Peter Jackson was like freaking out and I think they had to like fly in his um, his dentist from from the states or something like that and uh, like this and obviously it's just this huge expense as well because these actors are going to have huge insurance policies and things like that as well so. And it's just, you know, your your main star could be out of action for a couple of days and that's going to be... Vigo huge, huge was an well. absolute boss. I think, yeah, I think in his, his situation, he was like, we've all heard how much of a like, legend Vigo Mortensen is anyway. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I heard that he just took it like a like an absolute champ and he was like uh, back on set like straight away or something. So Yeah, I think at first he he refused to go to the dentist and he wanted to use that pain in the scenes that he was filming for Helm's Deep. What and then man. he was made... He was made go to the dentist and one of the things was that he was covered in fake orc blood and they offered to like <laughs> take this all off. And he was like, no, no, it'll it'll be like upsetting for the continuation of the, you know, oh, right. for the continuation of the movie. So he was like, no, yeah. I'll keep it all on. And um, like, like, basically yeah. he got the tooth done and he was in serious pain, but he was back filming like 30 minutes later. Oh my God. That's incredible. Yeah. That's amazing. Also, we should shout out. Well, I can't remember who it was on Twitter. Somebody got in touch with us on Twitter uh, the other day. You, you'll probably remember who it was. And they sent us a, a link for the story of what happened to Boromir when uh, Sean Bean got stabbed in a bar in London. Basically, because we spoke about that in our Boromir episode and we said that uh, we didn't know anything else about what actually happened in that story. But apparently, um, Sean Bean was out with a, a, a young lady and she was getting some uh, nasty comments towards her. And he basically tried to... Um, defend her honor, I suppose. And then uh, later, the guys that were uh, shouting uh, and being being abusive, they came back later on and had a bit of a, a brawl. And Sean Bean was ended up like having a bit of a scrap with them in the streets of London uh, outside the bar and got stabbed in the arm by uh, a broken bottle. And yeah. Uh, and then also after that, they asked him would he like to go to the hospital, and he refused. Uh, he refused the invitation in the in the ambulance to go to the hospital, and he ended up going back inside the bar and got the first aid kit and asked for another pint and uh what a what a legend sean bean is in that situation what a legend yeah and yeah to to shout out that is dakin schultz that are at dakin schultz that sent us in that uh so we want to say a massive thank thank you thank you for that thank you very much i was really delighted that i got to hear the end of that story because dave had started to tell me that story in our barmer podcast and i had i was tucking myself in and getting ready for a nice little bar mirror or Sean Bean story and then he told me and I don't know anything else and so I was very what can I say I'm a professional <laughs> <laughs> thanks for doing my work at Dak and Schultz yes thank you very much so well actually this is all part of the plan we wanted to make you all wait a couple of weeks before you could get the end of that bar mirror story well there you go we are professionals this means now that you have to go back and listen to that bar mirror story oh. or that bar mirror episode so there you go mm. Link is in the description below. Maybe not. <laughs> so, <laughs> also, Elijah Wood's sister, Hannah Wood, is one of the refugees in Helm's Deep, as is Henry Mort- Mortensen, which is Vigo's son. Philippa Boyens, who's come up in this podcast before, her son, Callum Boyens, is the boy who gives Aragorn his sword. 
but that isn't actually his voice in the final cut because Callum's voice had changed by the time it came to do the looping so a different voice was cast I assume that he just like broke his voice or something Uh, well his voice broke you mean not that he broke his voice (laughs) sorry (laughs) did you not say that no I I broke my voice yeah you can say that I don't think that's I've never heard that before in my life maybe you can I don't know sounds weird to me I broke my voice doesn't seem like something that I do to my voice. So it like I don't know, because it only happens. happens once. It's like, yeah. I drop my balls. <laughs> <laughs> same same thing. What happened? Did your, your balls drop off? Hmm? So finally, Gandalf's line near the end, declaring that the battle for Helm's Deep is over and the battle for Middle-earth is about to begin is actually paraphrased from part of one of Sir Winston Churchill's most famous speeches of World War II of June 18th, 1940, where he says, The battle of France is over. I expect the battle of Britain is about to begin. So it's cool how it was Hmm. directly lifted from there. And also, I just wanted to say one more thing about... Yeah, exactly, plagiarism. (laughs) Um... But also, I just want to say, have you ever noticed something a little off with that scene when Gandalf and the boys all come up to the top and he gives that little speech? Uh, is it with Eomer? Uh, yes. That it's not. Yes, it's, it is. It's not, a, it's not him. It's, a, it's the extra. Yeah, it's it's actually hilarious when you go back and watch yeah. this. Like, for all you guys, next time you're watching The Two Towers... Just look at Aemir on the far left and you'll realise clear as day it's not Carol Urban at all. They don't even try to hide it. It's a stand-in instead. And on the audio commentary for the movie, Jackson revealed that they actually meant to digitally replace his face with Carol Urban's in post-production, but they just completely forgot. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I'd only heard that fact um, a while ago and then mm. I had never noticed before, but I watched uh, Two Towers last week. And, um, of course, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's been ages since I've seen it. So, I mean, it's been a good five or six days. So, uh, that was the, mm-hmm. that was the, the last time I watched it. And that was the first time that I kind of kept my eye out, eye out for that. And, uh, yeah, it's really funny. One other thing actually, that's cool about Ham's Deep, uh, was I was watching an interview with Viggo Mortensen uh, a few weeks back and he spoke about how he has like a terrible fear of heights. Um, kind of like Sean Bean that we spoke about before as well. Oh, um, yeah. Or sorry, no, it's not it's a fear of heights. It's that he has a, a vertigo. Vertigo. Yeah. Vigo. Vertigo Morgenstein. Yeah. <laughs> vertigo Morgenstein. <laughs> so he has vertigo. I think he said that uh, he doesn't suffer hugely from it. He's got it like a few times in his life. I think he said his mother has it very badly or something like that as well. But uh, he said that at one stage during the scene where he was running up the stairs, uh, to like you know when he runs upstairs and he's like uh, it's just when Haldir gets stabbed and he's running up to and when he's he like, punches the Uruk punches the guy and he's like yeah he's in like a massive rush to get up to, to check on Haldir and he said they were shooting that scene it was night time it was just kind of like crappy stairs that was kind of like slippy and not really well like it's mm. yeah it was really narrow and he said that he's up there and he suddenly gets this massive like uh, attack of vertical and he said that he is just completely in like he, he's just completely immobile he can't do anything and he's um he kind of suddenly got it and then uh he kind of had to try and fight through it and kind of continue acting and just then they were like okay we're going to take a short break and so they you know they yelled cut and they said okay we're going to take like 15 minutes and everybody was coming down the stairs 
because there was a huge load of actors that were up on top of that area as well. And Vigo just said that, you know, it's quite a narrow stairs. And he said that he just put his back to the wall and just stood there frozen. He said he was like white as a ghost and just stood there against oh, the God. wall. And all of the actors and all the crew were like walking past him. And he was trying to pretend that everything was okay. And he was just sort of, <laughs> they were like, you're right there, Vigo. Are you coming down? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll be down in a minute. And he said that everybody just kind of slowly walked past him on the stairs and went down to the bottom. And they all went off. And he said that he just stood there for the entire 15 minutes, frozen. And he couldn't move. Oh man! And then, uh, Poor Vigo. And then they went back in the shot again, and he had, he he just had to had to fight through it. And uh, he, 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 he you know he ended up you know as we've seen he chips a tooth and he's he's gone for thirty minutes and he's back again. So this <laughs> this put him out for a little bit, but he ended up you know fighting through it again and uh, he got those uh, scenes shot. But um, yeah, so he said he's only had a few big vertigo attacks in his life, and that was one of the worst ones he's had. Wow, that's cool. I never heard that before. But it is not this day! This day we fight! It is over. Well guys, that concludes another episode of the Council of Elrond. Again, we want to thank you all for your continued support by listening to these podcasts and by sending us messages. We are amazed by the enthusiasm you guys have shown and we really want to keep that going best way to help us out is by leaving a five-star review on apple or Castbox or whatever platform you use unfortunately spotify doesn't have this feature but hey you can always share our podcast on your social media what did you think of our breakdown of this incredible battle of helms deep do you have anything else to add again you can let us know on our twitter instagram or our facebook page we'll see you next week the episode of helms deep is over but the podcasts for more Middle Earth are about to begin. <laughs> <laughs>